Andy Greenberg is my guest on the podcast this week. Andy is a technology journalist, one of the most well-known security journalists, uh, currently a senior writer at Wired magazine. Uh, Andy, you and I met when you were at Forbes, but prior to Forbes, were you doing tech writing and security writing prior to Forbes? No, not really. Forbes.com really was my first job right out of, of graduate school. I mean, I was a freelance reporter for some years and I tried to to be a a freelance reporter in China right out of college. Then I went back to grad school and then I got the job at Forbes.com that turned into the, you know, Forbes magazine. And I was there for a, a while. And that, yeah, you that's did journalism in school? Not uh not in college. In college I studied a bunch of useless things. But in um in graduate well I shouldn't say useless because studying journalism is kind of questionable too. But I, I I went to this business and economic reporting graduate program at NYU after that. And when, where did this, where did the journalism bug come from? Were you always a writer as a kid? Was this something that always fascinated you? No, I, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess I, I thought when I was a kid that I might be like a, an actual fiction author someday. I mean, that was kind of like this pipe dream. But after college, just at the end of college is when I was like, hey, I don't actually have any skills at all. I'd studied philosophy and music and and things like that. And uh, and I spoke Chinese. So I was like, how about I, I'll just go to China and try b- being a journalist there. And that will just be an opportunity to keep learning stuff and you know having adventures. And maybe I'll actually be able to make some money. Um, it didn't exactly work out that way. And I, I, I did like I wrote for Time Out Beijing and some other English language magazines in in China, but it wasn't a real living at all. And I figured I needed to actually learn how to do this properly. And so I went to to NYU for yeah for J school. Oh, that's awesome! And Forbes dot com was your first gig doing technology in general, or did you already start on the security beat? Well, yeah, I um, the week that I. So I, I I was an intern at Forbes.com and I wrote all these stories about like black hat SEO schemes and things. The kind of stuff that you can the kind of stories you can write when you're just kind of getting started and don't really uh you can't travel around, you don't really have sources. So I was just kind of um trawling the weird parts of the internet to learn about these strange Google SEO and uh SEM scams and schemes and writing about that for forbes.com and they loved that in the early 2000s right this is not quite it was like 2006 oh later okay so i got a job at forbes.com in the middle of grad school and the 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 week that i got hired at forbes.com just happened to be the week that lisa lair who i think is maybe now at the new york times she was the security writer like security in quotes for um forbes but she was, I think, really more interested in national security and not, you know, the geeky stuff that you and I write about. And you're you're separating Forbes.com from Forbes magazine here, right? And just for the audience, for the sake of the audience. Yeah, I mean, back then, the Forbes.com was almost a different company than Forbes magazine. Um, like we were in different buildings. Uh, we had totally different staffs. And if you were lucky, you got to do a kind of... Um, week visit to Forbes magazine and work on a story. And that was like special privilege for, you know, if it for the lucky Forbes.com people. And that that only went away really when uh the you know the whole media collapsed after 2008 and there just wasn't there weren't enough resources to have two staffs. So they basically 
it was really the magazine that suffered the most. And Forbes.com kind of swallowed up Forbes magazine, actually. It's funny. It's, that was my exact experience at eWeek. I was working at eWeek, the online edition, which had its own stuff and its own editorial output. And then there was eWeek, the book out of Boston that had its own stuff and its own editorial output. And Dennis Fisher and I were on the same stuff, almost competing with each other. And at the time, it was interesting that being in the book and being able to write the story for the print magazine was the big deal. And then when media got mangled in the... Uh, when media got destroyed, it's funny. Yeah, how I mean, the one uh, it was it was uh, kind of bittersweet because uh, for everybody at Forbes.com, who honestly, you know, we were working our tails off, like producing so much. There was there were very high demands about how much you had to write, and all these slideshows and things. Suddenly, we inherited like the you know the this magazine where um, I mean, I wouldn't say we inherited it, but. But we, you know, the Forbes.com people really won out in that terrible time. But the Forbes magazine people, you know, it was just sad to see the, uh, that, I mean, I, I, I have like mixed feelings about the kind of heyday of Forbes when it was a very conservative magazine and still, you know, has some politics that I don't totally agree with. But they, they were very nice to me and let me write whatever I wanted eventually and, and without that kind of political slant. But it was still kind of sad to see this magazine that had been just a place where, you know, reporters flew first class and would spend months or years on stories just kind of be, you know, compressed and, yeah, decimated. I mean, the Forbes family lost, you know, all of their kind of lifestyle, the rich and famous things like the castle in Morocco and the yachts and stuff. I mean... All those brands, yeah, they had some established brands around, like you know, just reporting on. Yeah, I mean, I think wealth, Forbes magazine you know? is still like I, I really respect a lot of my um, former colleagues and other people who have come since. I think they do some really great work, but it's just a very different place than it was in like the early two thousands when it just seemed like money was growing on trees. It's an entirely different world too, because you and I are clinging to the romanticism of writing for a publication that's in print that you can hold and feel. I come from the old newspaper background. I was a, I was a journalist in the early uh, 1990s when you actually wow. typeset it on typewriters and did the old print run with bromide and the whole thing. So there's a certain charm and romanticism attached to that that we're still clinging to. I talk to my kids. Uh, I have a 23-year-old daughter and a 17-year-old son. They have no interest in magazines whatsoever. Like their whole notion of content creation and engaging yeah, is yeah. it's all on phones and online. And that romanticism I mean, my, my, and charm of books old son, are gone. And he has never seen a newspaper before. Like he does not know what a newspaper is. And it's just so wild to me. I mean, um, I, but I don't know. There's still yeah, like crazy. the main thing that you get from writing for print, I, it seems like is that the subjects really want it and they still really appreciate being, you know, having their photo in a glossy magazine. Yeah, the cover of Wired is still a big deal. We'll get to the cover of Wired because I want to get into this article you just wrote as well. But the it cover is, of and, Wired and is still a big deal. It's like a today. huge, I don't know, it's um it's a it's a tool in a way that, you know, you can use as a journalist to get stories that you wouldn't get otherwise. You know, it's perfect segue. Perfect segue. You just dropped an 18,000-word opus on Marcus Hutchins. Uh, Marcus Hutchins, obviously, is the guy who lucked into the WannaCry kill switch and became an internet hero subsequent. Uh, the story is well-established and documented, and you just went through 
uh, you just wrote a, what I call an opus on it, which was fantastic. I loved the storytelling. I loved the human interest tone of it. I loved that I was moved in certain parts of it. I loved that at the end of it, I felt it was a really interesting redemption story. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a lot of the times when I read or when we read, I'm a jilted old man, when we read these redemption stories, it's always PR driven. It's, it's driven by an organization and, uh, and, and publicists who plan it carefully and place it carefully and set up these interviews carefully. In this case, this is not that at all, at least that's from my reading of it. Give me a sense of uh, your, your work on coaxing this story out of Marcus, because I, I imagine everyone wanted the story as well. Just coaxing the story out of yeah, Marcus well, and getting him to um, open up. Well, thank you for way. all those kind words. Uh, it's really, um, yeah, I really appreciate it coming from you uh, as like a fellow journalist too. Um, and I know you had some criticisms of the headline, for instance, but th thank you for being generous about it. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, convincing Marcus to talk for this story and not just, you know, talk a little bit, to, but to share all of the parts that he had not shared. I mean, it, th that was the the whole idea here was to tell the untold Marcus story. And he had talked, you know, I, I, I had talked to Marcus um, over the years on the record for stories about his research. And he had even told me for my book, Sandworm, like I, I tell briefly in that book, the story of him finding the WannaCry kill switch. But that's the easy part of the story to tell. Of course, what everybody, what I wanted to hear anyway was, what is the real story behind his indictments? Like, what is the story of his, of Kronos? His Black Hat days. Yeah, his Black Hat days, like his life in this cyber criminal underground. Um, and and so as soon, I mean, I, I I wrote some like quick news stories about Marcus after, before his arrest, but then after his arrest, you know, I could see immediately that this was going to be a really interesting story, like a really complicated and, roller coaster of a story uh and as soon as he re reappeared on twitter i think you know as soon as he was basically like out on bail and re and had internet access again i started talking to him about trying to do the big piece and of course i you know very understandably and i sort of knew that that he wouldn't be able to talk for a long time because his case was still underway so so basically i kept checking in with him for years and just trying to convince him that I was the person to, you know, to finally tell his whole story to. And then after it, he was sentenced to time served, this kind of happy ending. I mean, this shocking results to me. Um, that was when I came back to him and I said, OK, now it really seems like you do have you're free to tell this story now. And I think. It, Did you know that there was this much of a black hat history at the time of trying to convince him? Did you already know that there was the, the the black hat history went a lot deeper than what was on the surface? I guess I did know that there would be a really interesting story there. In part because of, because of course Brian Krebs had done an amazing piece um, where he yes, the the who is Marcus Hutchins yeah, piece right um, and dug into that stuff. But in his sort of like you know investigative outside perspective, I mean that that was an excellent piece of investigative reporting. Um, a, lo a lot of Marcus's supporters hate, hated it and still, you know, hold it against Brian that he did that. But I, to me, it was told in a pretty, uh, somewhat fair way, and it's legitimate journalism. And it was, I mean, people can yeah. get mad. It's legitimate journalism. It was, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of cruelly timed for from Marcus's perspective because he was at that point still kind of considered a sort of. Um, martyred hacker hero and then this 
this, I think, probably did detract from some of his support, that that Krebs piece. But anyway, I mean, my, my point was that I, I could see that there, you know, that that story, I, I have to say, like, it kind of, it doesn't tell the human story, but it does sketch out a lot of Marcus's black hat past in, in just the kind of barest forensic details, you know. Um, so I knew that there was something interesting there and I, I could just, you know, guess that like Marcus was so young when he, when he was doing this. And I, I, I didn't know that it would. If you're buying a Big Mac in Las Vegas at seven in the morning, it, yeah, I mean, come on, that, if that doesn't speak to his youth, uh, even now. While, while like, I'm just reading the story stoned. and just the, sorry, go I ahead. Said, while extremely stoned from uh, like a whole. Oh my it, God, just, is that how the kids are living these days with this speed use and drug use? And well, uh, is that normal? I don't know. I'm too old to to, to know There's myself. Some Mr. Robot stuff there with the anxiety and stuff. That's why I like the story. I like the way you told the story, and I and and I, f I, f I felt connected to Marcus throughout the way you told the story. However, right, I'm like you talk about people who uh, supporters of Marcus and detractors of Marcus, and people who will never get around to the fact, get their head wrapped around the fact that this is a guy who has a, a pretty deep black hat past that you describe. It's it's uh, deep, you know, but it's story. like in some ways. I don't know. It's it. I actually, in some ways, was su surprised uh, th that it's you know, Kronos does seem to have been the pretty much the worst thing that he did. Um, he, but he, did, yeah, he like dabbled in many other things, like running a criminal web hosting service. Uh, yeah, yeah, like all that stuff we can't just gloss over. Operating like all the early stuff I mean, we can't just gloss over. And you know, I, to Marcus's credit, he didn't gloss over it either. You know, some of it. I, I did he tell you everything? Do you feel that he told you everything? I, I don't think I'll ever know. Um, I, I, I don't well, know. You'll get a feeling. I did get the feeling that he was telling me that he was telling me the worst things. I think he okay. he there was, you know, I think that there was a lot of kind of petty criminal things, some of which he kind of glossed over. There were points where, you know, I found things in on hack forums, you know, archives myself and brought them up to him. And he was kind of like, oh, yeah, I did that, too, without much hesitation. You know, he didn't try to but it, but he didn't tell me everything. I did have to kind of find evidence of some of it myself and ask him about it. But but he then he wasn't he didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to, like, you know, uh, conceal those things or downplay them when I brought them up to him. So we'll just I just to close the book on this because I don't want this entire podcast to be focused on this article is uh, do, do you feel uh, just to go back to the original question? This is not a staged PR thing. You feel it was just a genuine kind of let me just get all this stuff off my chest so I can really move on and have a productive adult proper life. Genuine. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's Marcus's motivations are complicated. Like I uh, part of it is, you know, uh certainly that he wanted to i think he wanted to be he wants to be seen as a legitimate researcher and to kind of tell this stuff this whole story so that it could kind of be told and and he wants to be able to go to conferences and speak about like new cool things that he's finding or stuff that has nothing to do with WannaCry or Kronos um but that is worth talking about i mean he he wanted to tell a whole the whole story of all of his good work that has not a lot of it has, of which has not really been focused on like all of his botnet tracking and like his 
his work to help stop the attack on Lloyds Bank in the UK and the attack on Liberia and things like that. I mean, uh, so so that's not you know uh, that that is he is that is a and it's not exactly PR. He doesn't have a PR person, but that was him trying to change his image in a legitimate way, I think. But then also, I think there was like a real part of this where he was just, I mean, he told me much more than he needed to, to tell that story. He did, I think, treat this as, I think he did like, he was confessing in part and trying to, I don't know, tell like an honest story to to, kind of like in this cathartic way. Be able to sleep at night, I guess. Because the guy doesn't sleep anyway. and, And to also, I think, like like I wrote near the end of the piece, I mean, he was kind of tortured by this moral imposter syndrome that he was seen as this, he was treated as a kind of innocent hacker hero like like Aaron Swartz or something. But he knew that he had actually done the crimes that he was accused of, or at least like maybe not all of the charges, but but in the kind of broad strokes. And that was, you know, he, he hated the guilt of, people thinking that he was innocent and sacrificing for him the way that, for instance, like um, Tara Wheeler and, and Deviant Olam did and others, like, you know, who they, they put down $30,000 to bail him out that they were going to use as a down payment on a house. And like the the extent How of- much of that Tara grabbing a Gucci shoes off her feet and running across Vegas is embellishment of your storytelling or real? Oh my god! Like I I I, don't, I mean I heard that all from from Tara and Deviant. They're the ones who can tell that story. But no, I didn't. You know, I I don't make things up, right? So I don't know. It's no, no, no. It, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's not like uh, something that I tried to embellish. It's something that I. I was kind of trying to just do justice to the story that that Tara and Deviant had told me. You, I, I include those details just to kind of like uh, make it yeah, give people a sense of the urgency of the moment yeah. and the time, the four o'clock time. Yeah, that's why I love this story. Listen, I'm, I love these human interest stories. I love reading long form stories. I hate Twitter and I hate what Twitter and and Instagram has done for journalism. So this stuff is right up my alley. So. Uh, I, I just want well, to thank yeah, you for I appreciate me. that. Thank you. Your work at for God, I don't know where to start with you, Andy. You and I go way, way, way back. Yeah, when was the first time we actually Black met? I think we probably like met for the first time in at Black Hat in like two thousand and eight or something. I don't know. Did you ever come out to Kansek West and chase after Pontuon? Uh, no, Rivers? I didn't. But I remember like I, I learned about Chowki Bekrar from your um coverage of that Pwn to Own, and then I like started talking to Chowki and I wrote a you're very, very good at segues because that was my next. Oh, question. really? Okay. Uh, yeah. That was my next conversation piece. Is your seminal piece on Forbes.com from? God, I don't even remember when that was. I think. Are you on, talking about like the zero day sales stuff? Like the one where you use my chalky photograph in the magazine? Oh yeah, that's right. You gave you gave me the photograph and we credited you. I I, I hope. Absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, that was 2012. Uh, that's like 2012. And that was a seminal piece because it was for the first time we had seen actual documentation of pricing um, of O'Day vulnerabilities in that very murky market. Uh, we, had no, we had known as journalists just listening to the guys talk, but your piece had first documented it. I mean, the Grug is still pissed at you. Uh, that's true. To this day. Yeah, I feel bad about that. I mean, I really appreciate the Gruck as a person, and and he's a brilliant guy. You should apologize to him here. He's a good guy. Well, Not apologize. Sorry, you should address him here. He's a good guy. Yeah, I've apologized to the Gruck. I, I apologized, you know, uh, in person. I think the next time I saw him in in Vegas, but uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I I remain. 
I, I guess like I, I so it's it's complicated. I, I I don't know. I don't want to dredge this up, but I don't. I I, I didn't trick the Gruck, and I think he, it's it's. I'm I was surprised myself when I published the story that he, you know, he participated in. He like sat for a photograph, if you remember, and I was kind of shocked myself when he was offended by the results. And I'm I'm sorry that I offended him, and I in the sense that like uh, I didn't. I I regretted in the sense that I didn't mean to color the story in a way that 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 would surprise him but i thought that he was right. I, I thought that he was kind of fragrantly telling me these things that he was you know un, un, unabashed about and uh yeah, sometimes you don't realize what you say until you see it in print it, it it's a weird thing and we have been through it over the years with folks who've said things to us or you know uh, uh given us this bravado tone and when you express it in print you get into trouble with them these things happen yeah yeah um, well but the grug thing, the grug thing, I bring up because as when I was preparing for this podcast with you, Andy, I spoke to Charlie and Chris. Oh, yeah. um, obviously, Charlie and Chris of uh, the fa- famous Jeep hack, and we'll get into that in a second. And those guys, like, outright told me we chose Andy specifically to give the exclusive to because we trusted that he was going to take care of the story and he was going to be fair to us whether he had to criticize us or not. And and then the grug comes to mind because every time I mention Andy Greenberg on Twitter, all right, you know, people there he has his supporters who say, you know, Andy really did wrong by the grug. So it just didn't balance at all to me hearing from Charlie and these guys saying, listen, we knew that this was going to be a, 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 a quote unquote controversial story and a controversial way to tell it. And we trusted that Andy would come and do justice to it and be fair to us. Well, yeah, I, I, I you know, when it comes to, um, like I, I, I don't know. I, I, it's a weird world to navigate because you're trying lives are to complicated. coax a you know good story is. out of it. Yeah, like you, you interact with a million people in your career, and I, I don't know. It's hard not to have some people who are pissed at you after like I don't know how long have we been. I, I've been doing this for like fourteen years almost now. So I, I, I think about the fact that the Gruck is pissed at me all the time. And he's on the, I, I hope a kind of short list of people who, um, who came away with a bad experience. But for the most part, like I, I try to, um, I don't know, just uh, a, a, when it comes to people, hackers and people doing research, who I, people who I see as the, the underdog in the story, like I try to be very fair with them and to, to tell the story as honestly as I can and to give them credit for their good work and just tell it the way that uh, I feel like the reader is owed. Um, the, you know, with, with Charlie and Chris, it's, uh, I've, uh, Charlie, uh, it was the one who I knew first and I had talked to him for years. I, I think like I, I wrote a piece about his hacking the very first iPhone Whenever that was, two thousand and oh yeah, you always used to get the Charlie exclusive. I mean that that's that goes way back to not only hacking the iPhone, I think the the MacBook battery story. Yeah, tra- the original I don't know, Charlie ISC. like gave yeah. me that stuff, and I'm I'm very grateful for it. I mean, Charlie w- at that point was an insanely prolific researcher. I mean, he uh, and I don't know he 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 decided at some point that like uh, doing an exclusive story was the best way to get like one good accurate story out there rather than a, you know a million kind of half true stories about um 
MacBook batteries being blown up by hackers and things. Make, makes perfect sense. We did it at Kaspersky as well when we were doing big announcements. We would just focus on one exclusive with someone who we know would do the story justice and be fair and 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 represent it and, and report it properly and then just have everyone as it makes sense. It's a it's a it's a model that makes sense when you want to tell a big story, you know? Yeah, I guess I guess so. I mean I I I try not to question it too much that that Charlie was giving me these amazing stories like about once a year at that rate at that time. Um but yeah I mean I Charlie is amazing and uh, he, his... Tell me about the Jeep hack story because so, that, that came out in July 2015. How long did you guys work on that? Well, first there was a prior car hacking story that I did with Charlie and Chris in 2013, I think. Yeah, two, black hat two years earlier. I think it was a Black, a black Hat or a DEF CON talk. But that, at that point, they were wired in to the cars. They did a, a Prius and a Ford Explorer, I think. And, but they were connecting their laptops through the OBD2 port to the dashboard of the cars, which now, you know, that, that seems like quaint. Like, uh, of course you can hack a car when you do that. But at the time I, you know, I, I don't, it was novel at the time. It yeah. was novel. It was the, it was the first set of guys poking at this part of, uh, of the car interfaces, right? Well, to be honest, the academic folks from UC San Diego and where was the University of Washington had done the full remote attack earlier, I think in the year before, maybe. I mean, they had done an incredible piece of research on uh, where they hacked a Chevy Impala, I believe, over the internet. I mean, it was it was just virtuosic. It was amazing. It was what Charlie and Chris would do years later. But those academics, they, the way that they did it was just so much. I mean, you could say it was more discreet in a way, but they also they did not reveal the make and model of the car that they hacked. Uh, they, you know, didn't really like talk about the some of the details of of what you know what it looked like or how they did it. Uh, they didn't release any code. So it, you know, what Charlie and Chris did it was a lot of it had to do with their personalities. You know, I mean, they are all they are sh yeah, they're showmen. They're showmen, yeah, and and. Uh, that is not just like an ego thing or a, or a kind of accident. I mean, when when you're doing vulnerability research to try to affect an industry like the auto you know automobile industry, being a showman can affect can create change can influence things much more than being a kind of um, very formal and discreet academic. I mean that so that's just to prove this. I. I found out years later that the bugs that those academics had had revealed to GM and the Chevy Impala were not patched for like five years, I believe. Was it three years? Was it five years? I can't remember. But they were not fixed, which is just, I mean, we're talking about like the same degree of vulnerability as the Jeep hack, but the vendor, the car maker in this case, did not fix the bugs because they didn't have to because, the, because, because it wasn't public. And I, that's... You know that is like the that sh I feel like that should be in in textbooks about uh, responsible or whatever you call it disclosure. There is in but there is Andy a very fine line between being showman and forcing the hand of vendors and stunt hacking. Yeah, and there were they, you know there were parts of the internet that was not entirely happy with the fact that uh, and uh, Charlie and Chris put you in a car and took video and they, there was this there was a, there was a genuine discussion around um, was it was this stunt hacking really necessary? Did you guys put other folks on the road at risk and all that kind of stuff? 
um, it, you know, but but like you said, when you and and me, you and I and Charlie spoke about this in Tenerife at SAS about at some point you need to make a certain set of statements to trigger movement, and that's what you're mentioning here is the fact that things had been unpatched and and not fixed for a long time. Yeah, but maybe yeah. the stunt hacking was necessary. I don't, you know, it, it's kind of. How do you? It's... Where do you see yourself in that poll? conversation i'm glad that i didn't have to make the decision because i i you know i didn't it was it uh, this was uh, for charlie and chris deserve both the all the credit and all of the blame for that stunts and in the sense that like they didn't tell me what they were going to do on the highway i you know but i but i think that when i say all the credit and all the blame i i think that the credit outweighs the blame and i but it's a hard calculus it's not yeah, at the uh, end obvious. of the day, 1.4 million vehicles were recalled, right? I mean, right. I mean, this was like a. There were results. There were, and I think beyond that, it really was a kind of wake-up moment for the whole auto industry that they needed to start taking cybersecurity seriously. And you could see that when you do it this like ultra responsible way uh, that the academics did, it did not have results. So there's probably something in between, um, but you know, we it's what's what's done is done <laughs> and and i you know i can't uh i can't I, I didn't make the choice to do the highway hack the way that it was done but i'm also not sure that it was a mistake like i i it's a it's a very complicated yeah, a, thing yeah it's an interesting conversation piece um, and i have to say that you know um i it's i, I it's not just that i am I don't, I don't know if it was a mistake. I think that it had effects that it would not have had otherwise. And it's, a, it's arguably the right thing to have done. I'm just, but it's, I don't know. It's, it's just a hard call. And uh, luckily I wasn't the one who had to make it. Do you get a sense that with their work, car security on the whole has improved across the board? Or do you get a sense that we are still kind of just, it, this area is so untouched the fact that not many security researchers have the skill or motivation, and it's also a very expensive field to get into car hacking, um, that it's, it's, it, that our cars are just not secure at all or safe at all? You know, it's really tough to say. We have not seen any car hacking in the wild that I'm aware of. Uh, I was going to ask that question next. Do you believe there are advanced adversaries that have car exploits that could potentially do dangerous things that you guys were trying to... I don't know. Uh, demo. You know, I, I wrote about car hacking so much um, for like a year following the G-Pack and Charlie it's and Chris, now. They, they really set off a whole like firestorm of, of other really excellent um, exploits research. I mean, I think a little of it kind of rose to the same level, but um, but there was enough that I, you know, I covered car hacking a lot for a while and it was all just just research and it has never materialized as um aside from theft you know aside from like uh attacks on keyless entry systems and things it has can bus hacking has not really i don't think um emerged as a you know a real threat and i don't know if that's was that was that because the threat model just was never there like it's 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 always been too hard um or is it because car makers caught up with it before it became a thing. I, I actually, I it's hard to say. I do. I, I think that maybe the most important, you know, the car hacking stuff was always about the future. It was always about like as cars become more internet connected, 
and more automated, um, the attack surface grows, and we need to get ahead of that. And that is definitely happening. I mean, the attack surface for autonomous vehicles is, uh, you know, enormous compared to the Jeep or you know the cars that they were hacking in prior years. So the fact I, I think it's it's really important that Charlie and Chris have you know went on to work on autonomous vehicle security and that other you know lots of other brilliant people are doing that too. I guess I I'm, I'm sorry I was about to say that like Cory Doctorow's upcoming book uh, I'll just say that it, Cory Doctorow's upcoming book has like a, a a a kind of scenario in it that involves autonomous car hacking that's very very scary and um I I hope that uh the car hacking stuff is helping to head off that that kind of dystopian future. Here's the thing that spooks me about the whole car hacking stuff, and Charlie brings this up a lot. It's not easy to get into uh, car hacking. So it's exclusionary by just uh, economically. The cost excludes the kids who can come up with all the new exploitation techniques and vectors, and, and there's no energy in it. There's a handful of guys who are doing it. The keen, the keen guys out of China are doing amazing work. Charlie and these guys are doing amazing work, but it's limited to a handful of folks who one, have the interest and capabilities, and two, the cost. You have to physically get a uh, a vehicle. So that worries me is that there's not enough eyeballs at all on some of this attack surface that you're talking about. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, now, um, now at least whoever is hiring Charlie and Chris and Colin Mulliner and like their colleagues, you know, th- those companies, like they work for Cruise last I checked. And um and I trust and I've I've had conversations with them that give me some, you know, a pretty good sense of like the what they're doing to secure autonomous vehicles. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't know if all the companies building autonomous vehicles are thinking that way. Um or, you know, every company in Detroit, these kind of dinosaurs, not not to be sorry, that's maybe rude, <laughs> but like some of these companies maybe just are not thinking the same way that like Silicon Valley is about security. I don't know. I think it's, there probably are in, in the worst cases, some really insecure vehicles rolling around. Well, it's just in, in the worst cases, there are some very, very insecure things connected to the internet. And I think the point you made about uh, this amplifying uh, this macro reality of everything of importance connected to the internet with new attack surfaces and new places to do uh, compromising, that it's just, uh, uh, the future is just daunting from a security perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it seems like the one of the ways that people picked up on that cheap hacking story and still talk about it is just as an example of like the insecurity of the internet of things generally. It's definitely like a, a, a an unusual example of that because it, the GPAC was in you know, orders of magnitude more difficult than, I don't know, these like light bulb hacks or something. It's a different story, but I think it it did serve as this like very visceral warning to people that if you start to connect everything to the internet, this is what can happen. Can we nerd out a little bit on writing? Yeah. You have done a really good job of turning feature articles into books. Uh, This Machine Kills Secrets was about... uh, uh, it, you could say it's like about WikiLeaks and the kind of cypherpunk cryptography and the cypher, cypherpunk movement and anonymous leaking. It's not, yeah, it wasn't like as core of a hacking story as, you know, what you and I write about generally. 
Right, but um, in addition to that, you've you've turned a, a piece on not Petya, this devastating cyber attack in history. I think your headline was the code that crashed the world. Your wired headline writers still drive me crazy. Um, but you turned that into sandworm. How do you know when a story is uh, transferable to a good book in your head? Well, for, for Sandworm, it actually, so the Not Petya story was an excerpt of the book that we just published a year before the book came out, which is really weird and unusual. But um, but I, but I by the time I wrote the Not Petya story, it was a part of my book already. It was just like... Ah, I see. Um, so you they, they confused us by the way the excerpt I, was published. I gave it to Wired really early, basically, because I, although it was like kind of a very key part of my book, in fact, maybe like the climax of the book, it just felt too urgent to sit on for another year, you know. But what actually happened was that I I wrote this story about the you know Ukrainian cyber war, um, and all of the the you know the industrial control system attacks happening there, the attacks on the Ukrainian power grid, and what I saw is kind of like uh, a, the first true sustained series of real cyber war attacks. <clears throat> Basically, my editors had asked me to find the, the big story of cyber war to do a big like cyber war issue of Wired, and I I very, kind of was initially skeptical, but I had you know read my former colleague Kim Zetter's piece about the that first Ukrainian blackout, so I went looking for more in Ukraine, and then there was another blackout in Ukraine, and and so I built this feature story, the cover story about Ukrainian cyber war. And that was it. Like I didn't think that that was going to be a book. I thought that that was the end. But then the week that that cover story came out, and on newsstands was the week that NotPetya hit. And uh, I, and it, you know, it took me a little while. It took all of us, I think, a little while to understand what NotPetya was. That it was not criminal. That it was not ransomware. That in fact it was tied back to the very same hackers who had carried out those blackout attacks in Ukraine. Once I saw that this was all one group of of you know cyber war focused hackers, um, that Napetia was was their kind of you know big moment when all of the warnings that we had, the, in fact that I had written about that what was happening in Ukraine would soon spread to the rest of the world, that Napetia was the was those warnings coming true. That was when I knew that there was a book to write, and uh, you know I. It, it did take me a long time, though, after that. to Right, but you've written a lot of important stories over the years, a lot of big important stories over the years. By the way, how often are how often are you are you pursuing stories based on the Wired editors? Uh, you know, nudging you in certain directions, or and in your in your world at your level, I imagine you're pitching a lot of the biggest stories to them, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, I like that that time when Wired editors asked me to find a story on cyber war. You know. That that's about as much as I get generally. <laughs> like it's and and that that was just like cyber war. Go find it. So it, it was not like I- anything more concrete than that. I mean, wired. It, I mean, on the web. Uh, to be clear, I, ha- I have a fantastic editor who has an amazing you know amazing news judgment, and I think is really good at at knowing when to like follow a story, when to like try to find the the, the next day the or the you know what to dig into. Um, that kind of thing, or like you know, he gives me ideas all the time. But when it comes to the magazine, though, I'm I'm pretty much like finding my own projects. 
Um, right, but it goes back to like you've written a lot of big stories. When do you know one is a book? Like in this case, yes, this is cyber war. You'll know that this is a book. But uh, just just help help well, the other young writers yeah, understand yeah. how they can think about building out uh, building out themes and thinking bigger beyond just a story. That something can develop into something bigger. Yeah, it's hard to 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 know like what the the formula is, but I do think that it is about like these. Um, not to to make it sound formulaic, that sounds like pejorative, but it's but there are structures of of big stories, and I don't mean just like of uh, a magazine size story. Although I guess that's true too. Like you, you know, there are certain ingredients of a magazine story where you know you know that there is going to be narrative, that there is going to be twists and turns and things, and that you can kind of like flash back to someone's history and tell that or you know uh that that distinguishes them from a news story or just like a web feature but for a book you really need like a real arc and they're you know very hard to find i don't know when i'm gonna find my the, the next story that is worthy of a book but with this ukraine thing with sandworm uh like once i saw that that not petya was was also the work of sandworm uh, you could see this amazing arc that I kind of compared to like the story of the big short or something where mm-hmm. if, if you've read that, where there's this kind of um, a terrible disaster that is sort of like off on the horizon and a small group of people see what's happening, like see the evidence of it. And they, these Cassandra characters try to warn people and they like fail to get attention to it and then you know then the disaster hits and and so the contagion movie script kind of that arc i haven't actually i have to say i've not cons- i haven't seen contagion i'm ashamed to say but well, it's usually it's the same it's the same thematic kind of the scientists trying to warn the politicians and everyone ignored them for years and then the big thing hits and then now it's a mad scramble yeah so you know like that that means that you can kind of tell a detective story of like these detectives who are finding the clues that reveal that there is something terrible in the works and then that you can tell this disaster story when the thing hits and that's you know those are like genres that carry readers through you know hundreds of pages uh and make you know make books work i think that like some people um i don't know i i don't i, I didn't follow those genres like so closely i i, I I spend a whole kind of third act of the book kind of like going back to trying to figure out who Sandworm is and where they are and then doing this kind of like epilogue, well, you know, kind of um, post-mortem analysis of like, what have we learned from all of this? And I think that that actually made the book less readable and less commercial, but it felt important to do it to to kind of try to extract those lessons. But right. yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking about in terms of like really big stories is what is the story arc here? Like, I, I mean, um, there, I think a lot, of, I don't know. I, I think that like most long form writers just are thinking about story structure all the time and yeah. like looking for things in the world that match those structures. Are you writing as you're gathering information in real time? Or are you like me who just kind of keep notes everywhere and then at the and when you're ready to do, you do one big write after your brain has kind of absorbed all the directions and all the flow. Or are you one of those methodical kind of, I'll write, I'll write my paragraphs as they come up? 
Oh, no. No, I, I definitely don't r- start writing until I'm like pretty much mostly done, done with, with reporting. reporting. Yeah, which is not smart, I don't think. Like, I, I don't know if that's the right approach, but I but think I am. it's the right approach. I think it allows you to really write your story properly because in your brain you have everything. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, allow, it allows you to do things like foreshadow. You know, you can, you can like weave into the beginning of the story something that will come to fruition in the end of it, something, stuff like that, you know. And that's cool. Um, but uh, I don't know. It probably isn't the most efficient way, but... Yeah, it's harder. Yeah, you... you um, I don't know. I, I do, as I'm reporting, I definitely am like writing in my head. Like I hear a, a subject say something and I'm like, oh my God, that's that's a whole, you know, thread of this piece or that's like, um, you know, a whole section of the story that I can already imagine how to how to tell it. You know, but just in my just in the, sh- in the shower or whatever. Like I'm not, um, uh, I'm not writing as I go. In in some of your reporting and some of the reporting you do, uh, a lot of it is driven by PR organizations, marketing organizations trying to make sure that they're positioned properly in certain stories. And it's very tricky for journalists in this world to navigate when there are maybe two competing interests with the same story or, or one might have a, 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 a access to a one part of the research and you need to go get the access to another part of the research and then that kind of trading of information back and forth becomes a very murky world. Is it as murky uh, as it appears or is that something you just kind of navigate easily? No, oh, no, it's it's definitely complicated. I mean, Sandworm, a lot of it is told from the perspective of of private sector security companies because they are doing this, you know, the research and the intelligence work. Uh, but they'll and they're also willing to talk about it, unlike the you know the three letter agencies that actually know the most. So you know, Dragos and FireEye and ESETs and Kaspersky and all these companies are 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 players in the book. Uh, and it is a really, it, it's a very fraught thing because they all want credit for their their findings, and um, I don't know. I have hey, you were blamed for like like taking the name and giving it to someone else. <laughs> which 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 thing? <laughs> Tell uh, me. They, 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 they know the whole sandworm thing from ESET claiming that you know. Oh, you mean the it should not have been about... called sandworm? That whole no, it was. I think what forth. you're what you're thinking of. Is yeah, I mean, you said it has their own name for Sandworm. They call it Telebots, and but but it was it was. I think what you're thinking of is the fact that ESET found this blackout malware in Destroyer, and then uh, basically uh, Dragos they they shared the code with Dragos so that Dragos could be uh, like another credible voice like a validation I mean, actually like a, just a validate that they have found yeah we do it I, all the time when i was at kasporsky we did it all the time we would have something we would want semantic to go with us so we can validate it together but it wasn't actually that even it, it was that they they shared it with rob lee so like I, the 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 deep story here is that like i they were i i heard this about this piece of malware from eset many months before they went public with it and I, when they were ready to go public, I was like, do you think that we could get like a, um, like another outside voice just to comment on this? Like, can I talk to somebody like Rob Lee about it? And then ESET basically said, oh, sure. In fact, I'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll do even better than that. Like we'll share um, s- some samples. And they just reached out to, to ESET to, well, sorry, they reached out to Rob Lee. I think maybe not even being aware that he had his own company. 
Because that was very, very early days for Dragos, and Rob Lee was mostly just seen as this ex-NSA expert, you know. Uh, In this ICS space, right? Right. And they shared some code samples with him, which, you know, was not what I was asking for. Uh, and then Dragos took those and ran with them and did their own analysis and report and got, you know, he said extremely... He said got out-marketed. Well, um, because I, I, it's like, it, it's... I don't want to get back into that that like snake pit, but it was everybody was mad at everybody. Like uh, yeah. I, I got a lot of flack because I was it was seen that like I had done this, but I, you know all I had asked for was can you guys like let me talk about this with another credible person just to get you know another perspective, which is something journalists have to do all the time. And and then they I you know I think were shocked at how you know they they, they shared you know, more than I asked for, for sure. And, and it did, I think, you know, really detract from, I don't know if it detracted from the credit that they got. I mean, I, in the book, I gave them absolutely full credit for having made this discovery. And Anton Sharapanov is, you know, one of the heroes of this book. And I, I hope that I did him justice, but, um, but, but he said was not happy with me and uh, <laughs> they were really not happy with Dragos. And it was, I hope that everybody is, you know, uh, I, I have, you know, a, a nice working relationship with ESET now. I think that they're amazing. Um, I, uh, Dragos also, of course, does incredible work. So I hope it's all just behind us. But, you know, as we were saying earlier, like these things are complicated and, uh, yeah, it's like very difficult. It's, to it's impossible to navigate and keep everyone happy. It's impossible, especially when you're, you're, you know, you're dealing with sources and resources and folks who are, you know, they're helping you and they're helping you understand the story. And then you get into, oh my gosh, if I do this, I might burn him. It's just very, very complicated. And it's important for us to talk about it on podcasts like this. So maybe some of these researchers will listen to it and understand what's happening on the other end of it. Yeah, but I guess like the, what I would just say is that I, I, you know, have immense respect for ESET and I, you know, was not ever my intention to detract from the credit they got for this. And I hope, in fact, that I, you know, I've written thousands and thousands of words in this book, tens of thousands of words probably about ESET's work on what they call telebots and what you know other people call sandworm. So, and I hope that I, <laughs> I hope that I dug myself out of whatever pit I was in. It's a good book. I bought a couple of copies and I keep giving it away to people. So thank you. Thank <laughs> me later. Yeah. Well, thank um, you now. Thank you. <laughs> are there? And we mentioned some of the biggest stories that pop up into books or 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 you know uh, magazine covers. Are there specific or one or two stories over the years that you've written? Uh, that you regret not going back and building bigger? Are there stories that you're proud of that maybe did not get this kind of big national attention? Any of those that come to mind? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, you probably know how this works. I mean, you you spend a a year or some sometimes, or even you know sometimes more, um, following or chasing, digging into a story, and then you you publish it and you're kind of rolling the dice, like will people care or not? And your <laughs> entire kind of year's worth of effort um, is on the line. Like, 
And and during the course of that year, a few stories are breaking independently of your research that's peripherally tied to your story. And now you're worried that the, yeah. that all this effort goes to naught because someone will break something. I bring this up because Joe Men had this with his uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, scoop that he had to sit on for a long time and time yeah, until yeah. he released the book and just sit back hoping that no one would grab that scoop. That worked right? out beautifully for him. I mean, that was uh, an amazing way to debut a book, I think. But can um, you imagine the anxiety of just yeah. hoping that someone doesn't scope you in the months that you have to wait to get the book out? Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't envy him for those months, but then it all worked out. And, uh, you know, he also, I think sometimes you, you're, it, it, at least like he was held to that by external forces. Like I think he had, he wasn't allowed to publish it during the, like, what was the deal? During the Senate, like Beto's Senate campaign? So, yeah, yeah, to join yeah. the original campaign. But, but again, Beto was a high-flying national media figure. It was it was not outside the realm of imagination that some BuzzFeed reporter or a reporter from somewhere else would have picked up on that. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, you know what I mean? When you're working on something like this, yeah, you there are, like there are definitely sleepless nights, like a lot of them when you're worried that somebody else is going to get the scoop. And just it's like at CyberWarCon, I don't know if I should say, I don't know if I'm supposed to say like what no, I think that was the TLP Red conference. No, uh, maybe, but but anyway, another reporter. Why are they letting you in? Anyway? Another reporter told me that they had been working on a big NotPetya story uh, that they actually planned to release on the anniversary of NotPetya, and we were trying. I was hoping to to put out our NotPetya story um, on the release on the anniversary of NotPetya, rather, and we missed that. We couldn't get it done in time. And just by, you know, just by luck, like this other reporter did not publish their story on the anniversary, which would have totally, you know, taken a huge bite out of this, this thing that is like, you know, that, that I had spent a year on that was the, like, maybe the, the most exciting and like, most kind of like, revelatory part of my book, too. I mean, it's you, this is a, this is a really, it's just a dicey world to live in the long form investigative thing do you find it easier today to be a journalist in the age of twitter and the age of uh, access to information becoming a lot more instantaneous access to people the ability to send a dm to someone didn't exist when we were writing back in the day right do you do you find it uh, a pleasant experience in this fast 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 moving world or do you prefer the old world of news gathering old school type of well, you know, I can't even remember what it was like to to be a reporter before Twitter. Honestly, like I truly don't remember how that worked. Like how, like how did you? Oh, I, you got to read my book. So that's the other question I got. You got to help me understand when does the book end? Like how do you know when the book ends? Because I've written my book about the whole thing, and I just don't know when it ends. What do you? You're working on a book. Yeah, 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 my book is already done, and it, it's about this. It's about you know how security. It's just, it's just my 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 journalism story from the typewriter days through Twitter um, and how things have changed and 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 some themes there um, yeah but <laughs> I don't know when that story ends I mean it's it that is you know that's still the, I imagine it's the same for any book changing, though, right yeah. well, for any book you have to decide okay this is enough definitely yeah I mean with this I don't know but like as the story about Marcus for instance it's pretty easy to know when the story ends there's this happy ending you, you know but um with Sandworm, it was kind of like, I don't know, when I sort of got as close as I could to figuring out who Sandworm was, that was the best that, you know, I could do. And that was the end of the book. But but then you, that's, 
you know, you have to make that a satisfying ending somehow. It's, it's, it is tricky. You're coming up to the one hour mark and I know I got, I only uh, scheduled you for a limited amount of time. I want to ask you to close uh, by talking a little bit about the people who influenced you, Um, not necessarily in writing in general, but in, in, in security. Were there other folks, other journalists that you looked at that paved the way in this kind of writing that you like to do? Like who were your influences in security? Well, this is not, I, I know you're going to like think I'm just um, ass kissing because it's your podcast, but I definitely read your news stories and you were like the, um, you absolutely talk about taught, real me, people for a minute. taught me what's like a security news story was when I was just, you know, totally clueless and trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, I, I, uh, I read probably like every story you wrote at that time, but I, aside from Ryan Narain, I would say that, uh, I mean, I it's not an accident that I work at Wired. Like I um, followed the work of Kim Zetter and Kevin Polson, uh, specifically David Kravitz was on the team as well. And that- Ryan fr- Single. Ryan Single, who I competed with and had yes, immense respect for. Definitely him, but he was the editor. So I didn't like see as much of him. At least he was the editor eventually. And uh, those that team uh, was- I mean, they were superstars to me. And I looked at threat level uh, as just, you know, that is what I want. That's the team I want to be on. Uh, And I, you know, that's why I I work at Wired now is because I saw them as like the, you know, the paragon. The standard. Yeah. And then I, you know. Let me tell you, can I tell you what was the highlight of my, my security journalism career? The day Kevin Polson came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming to write for 27B stroke six. I think that's what it was called before. What is that? Oh, wow. Do you remember that name? Six? What kind of... That is not the catchiest name. For Do you me. remember that name though? No, not at all. No. Oh, if you go to the original threat level before it was threat level, it was called 27B stroke six. That was the name of the wired security brand. And it was named after, I believe it's some weird unemployment form or something. You can go check it out. It's on Google. Uh, but a highlight of my, my, like, I felt like I had arrived when Kevin Polson from Wired said, hey, would you consider coming and writing for us? No, I uh, mean, that, that I've, I also, you know, well, I, it wasn't, it wasn't the same for me. I, I just kept like bugging Kevin at DEF CON every year. Like, hey, can I, uh, can you hire me now? Like, I, I want to work for you. I want to work, uh, I want to be part of Threat Level. Um, I had talked to him about it for a long time. And then, of course, like this is always what happens. Like when when you actually get to be, un- well, I don't know. Let me say this again. Can I start over? Um, by the time you actually get onto the team, the team is totally different. And yeah, Kevin Poulsen left the, you know, immediately after I started at Wired. I thought he was going to be my editor, in fact. And, you know, he was immediately gone. And then, you know, Ryan Single was already gone and then Kim left. And, you know, so it's weird. Like you you, you get to be in your favorite band, but then, you, you know, they don't exist anymore. And you are. Yeah, the lead the singer band. is gone. And then now it's yeah. a whole different place. And it's like when you meet, it's like you meet your hero and he's not who you think he is. I don't know. Those people are still who I think they are. I mean, they're amazing reporters. But yeah, it's like, but Wired is not what I thought it was. It's very different. And I, I love it in, you know, and many of, for many of the reasons that I've always loved Wired, but it's not threat level. It's not that threat level. 
I actually reached out to Kevin a couple of weeks ago asking him to come on this podcast to talk about this exact thing, the old 27B stroke, six days, the early days of security reporting. He hasn't answered me. So Kevin, if you're listening, check your Twitter DM and give me a ping. Andy, if you, if you have access to him, ping him and tell him to come on and tell his story. Yeah, a lot I mean, of the young journalists today are just unfamiliar with the world of reporting pre-Twitter. Yeah, I mean, Kevin is uh, an incredible investigative reporter and, you know, someone who I have admired for years. Um, but I don't know, I don't, I don't see him putting himself out there uh, that much. So good luck with that. I'll get him on the podcast one okay. day. Good luck. Andy, thank you so much. Can you come back again? Let's talk uh, some more old stories. Uh, of course. This was uh, super when fun. When you drop your next Wired cover piece, come back. Let's talk about it. Okay. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me.